Get again to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me in Luke's Gospel. This morning we are in Luke chapter 9, and we want to look together at verses 37 to 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 50. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, the day after the transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among all of you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Uh, Father, now as we pause and take these few moments, and Lord, as as the question that the disciples asked after Jesus calmed the storm continues to sort of echo in our ears and kind of rattle around in our heads, who is this? Lord, we pray this morning that Uh, by your spirit and for the glory of your great name, uh, we would get a deeper understanding of how to rightly answer that question. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're not careful, we can read the Gospels and miss the point regarding Jesus. In fact, one could argue that it's rather easy to miss the point. Twelve men spent three years with Jesus, and they never seemed to really get who he was and what exactly he had come to do. They would occasionally give a correct answer as they wrestled with, who is this? But they never understood his mission. Luke reminds us of this sad and embarrassing fact. In fact, when you get to the end of Luke's gospel and go into volume two that he wrote, in other words, the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter one, verse six, 
we read this. Jesus has told them to stay in Jerusalem. He's told them that he's going and the spirit is coming. And here's their response. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus has been resurrected. He has appeared countless times to his disciples. And still they wonder if he's a political Messiah who will restore the national order and dignity of Israel. Well, this morning, let's recognize that it's not just the disciples who can make a hash out of properly identifying who Jesus is and what he came to do. In our own day and time, we have reduced Jesus to things like he's our own personal therapist or he's a big brother who gets us. Well, Jesus is not here to give us the stuff we want or to help us to live the life we've always dreamed of. Rather, our text for this morning reminds us of who who exactly Jesus is and what precisely he came to do. Now, on page five, you'll see a bullet, you'll see an outline in our bulletin for our time together. You'll also see the big idea. Here it is. Without the Holy Spirit, it's easy to miss the identity and mission of Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, it's easy to miss the identity and mission of Jesus. Four points to make this morning. A note that three of them are actually questions. So here's the first question. Liberation from. Liberation from. Luke has shown us both the power and the glory of Jesus. He can calm the raging sea, cast out a legion of demons, and raise the dead. His power is divine power. And then on the mountain in the transfiguration, three of his disciples saw not only his power, but they also saw his glory. So how exactly will the Messiah, how exactly will Jesus use that power? How will he make that glory manifest? Surely he's come to liberate Israel from the occupation of Roman legions, right? Surely this Messiah, this one with this much power, is going to restore the Davidic throne to Israel and get rid of all of the foreign powers, right? I mean, that's why the Messiah has come. Well, Luke wants us to see this morning right away that Jesus is using his power for a different kind of liberation. It's not a political liberation that he has in mind. It's not the freeing of a particular nation state from being an underling to another nation state. After all, think about it this way. Why would you and I care if an itinerant Jewish rabbi led a successful revolt against the Romans in the first century? Would we be gathered here this morning to celebrate and commemorate what happened in first century Jerusalem? We see how just how convoluted the disciples' thinking is. Jesus succeeds where they cannot. They don't understand what he came to liberate the people from. And since they don't understand his mission, 
they miss what it is that he's doing. There is a boy who needs to be liberated. But the liberation that he needs is not a liberation from Rome. No, instead, we're told, first by the Father in verse 39, and then again in verse 42, Luke tells us that there is a young man who is oppressed. He is in bondage. He needs to be freed. The, impress the oppression that he is facing is not a political oppression. It's not as though he's tired of Roman centurions coming and, and com compelling him to carry their stuff for at least a stadia. It's not like he's tired of the tax burden and needs to be liberated from being cheated by Rome and by the Roman toadies, the tax collectors. No, this young man is in bondage to a demon. And the demon manifests itself in a very particular way. We would call it epilepsy. But let's understand that Luke understands rightly uh, that, yes, the symptoms are epilepsy, but this is really the result of the young man being demon-possessed. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean that every demon possession is going to show up in this particular way. And it doesn't mean that as we talk about every person uh, suffering from epilepsy, it means somehow that, they are, <laughs> that they're demon-possessed. right? So if you have a friend or a family member who suffers from epilepsy, you don't need to go and like you know, splash them with holy water and lay hands on them and pray the demon out of them. Sometimes epilepsy is just epilepsy. But in this particular instance, it's not. In this particular instance, the epilepsy is a manifestation of the demon possession that the young man, that the young man is, is, is suffering from. And so Jesus came to liberate not Jerusalem from Rome. No, Jesus came to liberate sons of Adam and daughters of Eve from an adversary far more powerful and nefarious than Rome and all of her legions. Why did he come? What's he going to use that power for? Well, it isn't to, uh, isn't to liberate Jerusalem from Roman occupation. It isn't to restore the throne to Israel. No, Jesus came to liberate Sons of Adam and daughters of Eve who find themselves in a fallen world, oppressed and possessed and at the mercy of an adversary who is far more powerful and nefarious than they could ever hope to deal with. Secondly, then, we see that they hear, but they don't understand. They hear, but they don't understand. It's interesting, isn't it? In verse 43, after Jesus cast the demon out of the boy, Luke tells us all were astonished at the majesty of God. And again, in the second half of verse 43, they're still marveling at everything that he's doing. I mean, Jesus' power is unmistakable. And when you see something like that, all you can do is be astonished. All you can do is marvel at it. All you can do is give God praise for the way that his majesty is showing up. And in the midst of that, Jesus has these interesting words for his disciples. Verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. 
Now that is a really interesting phrase. Because everywhere that Jesus went, yes, he healed people, and yes, he would lay hands on folks, and he would cast out demons, and he would raise people from the dead. But Jesus, everywhere that he went, was also about announcing the kingdom of God. Jesus was a preacher. And so the preacher says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. And then he tells them something they don't want to hear. The Son of Man, in other words, that kingly messianic title, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, this is the second time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to be delivered over to his death. And their response is not a good one. At least we don't have Peter trying to rebuke him. Instead, verse 45, they don't understand it. And it was concealed. Why? How is it, how, how is it that Jesus is telling them something, uh, so, and, and he's being so explicit in this, let the word sink into your ears. Fellas, this is important. It's going to be on the test. The test is 50% of your grade. Don't flunk it. Write it down if you need to. Whatever. Listen, hear this. And yet they don't. It's concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Well, I hope you hear in this text echoes of our Old Testament reading this morning. Isaiah sees this wonderful picture of the glory and majesty and grandeur of God. God tells him to go and to proclaim a particular word, but he tells him they're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they're not going to perceive. Why? Why is this concealed from them? Now, as we've already seen, uh, Luke is in essence volume one of a two-volume work. There's Luke and then there's the book of Acts. And just as Acts chapter one helps us to understand how it is the disciples still, even after Jesus' resurrection, don't really grasp what's going on, right? They still think this is the time in which he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. In Acts chapter 2, we see the solution to this problem of the identity and mission of Jesus being concealed. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that falls upon the church and Jesus has told them in the Upper Room Discourse that the Holy Spirit is going to lead them into all truth. And in fact, apart from the Holy Spirit, they will never grasp rightly who Jesus is and what it is that he's come to do. And friends, that isn't just true for them then. It's also true for us now. Without the Holy Spirit, we will miss the identity and mission of Jesus. We will see, but not perceive. We will hear, but not understand. You see, the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical to someone's salvation. You cannot will yourself to understand the gospel. 
You cannot uh, simply just want really badly to go from death to life. You cannot remove your heart of stone and replace it by a heart of flesh. No, the Bible is very clear that all of those things are the work of the Spirit. What God the Father plans and what God the Son purchases, God the Spirit must apply. They hear, but they don't understand because the Holy Spirit has not yet been given to them. Thirdly, kingdom or kingdom? Kingdom or kingdom? How is it, again, that the disciples respond to all of these things? Jesus, they see his glory, and then they see him cast out uh, the demon to this boy. They're marveling at it. Everyone is astonished and amazed. Verse 46, an argument arose among as to which of them was the greatest. Way to go, fellas. You've seen the glory and majesty and splendor of God. You hear, but you don't understand. And now you top all of that by acting like a bunch of quarrelsome toddlers. Again, we see the power of Jesus creating a wrong response within the disciples. And it's not because there's something wrong with Jesus' power. It's not because there's something wrong with what it is that he's doing. No, there's something really badly broken and wrong within the disciples. Here's how J.C. Ryle puts it. Filled with the vain notion that our Lord's kingdom was to appear immediately, they were ready to wrangle about their place and precedency in it. Ryle quotes another scholar. He says, the throne of David did so fill their eyes that they could not see the cross. The disciples are convinced that given the power that Jesus possesses, he is surely going to use it to restore the kingdom to Israel. And when Jesus comes into power, guess what? We all eat. But who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man? Who's going to be the guy that lets everybody else know that they're with Jesus and Jesus has the power and Jesus is the king? So if they want to be on Jesus' good side, they better be on their good side. Now, let's be clear. There isn't anything wrong with wanting our lives to count. There's nothing wrong about wanting our lives to be significant. However, we need to understand that oftentimes we want our lives to count for the wrong reasons. We want them to be significant not because it brings glory to God, not because it somehow uh, serves our neighbor well, but we want to be significant because we want to be significant because it will remind people of how gifted and wonderful and smart and awesome and we're good enough and we're smart enough and doggone it, people like us. But that's not what this is about. Jesus says, no, we're not to be like that. We're supposed to be like little children. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to be infantile. 
We're to be childlike in our faith, but we're not to be childish. And there's a difference. When uh, when we were growing up, we did a lot of uh, vacations, but our vacations, uh, the McClellans didn't fly anywhere. We drove everywhere. Uh, we had a Ford Econoline van, and the six of us would pile in it, and away we would go. And it's interesting. Uh, when I was a boy, I, I never went to the front. I would go to the front of the van usually because I was hungry or because I got elected spokesman and somebody needed to go to the bathroom. I was the oldest, and that's what older brothers are for, right? Dad, can we please stop? But never once did I go to the front of the van and say to my dad, hey, um, you think you're driving a little fast? Hey, Dad, I, I know we're going this way to Grandpa and Grandma's house, but, you know, there, there is, did you think about maybe taking this pass? Or if it was announced the night before that we were leaving at 7 in the morning and you needed to be in the van and ready to go, there was never any, any desire to go, yeah, you know, it's a little early for me. Can I instruct you on how I think this ought to go? No, I simply trusted that when our parents said, get in the van, it's time to go, we're going on a trip. Number one, they knew where we were going. Number two, they knew how they were going to get there. And number three, uh, as much it was, as it was in their power, they were going to get us there safely. Well, you understand, of course, as you get older, you start to worry about those kinds of things. What route am I going to take? Amy and I are driving uh, to the wedding. It's in Chattanooga. We've never driven to Chattanooga before. So now we got to think about, are we going to take the northern route? Are we going to take the southern route? Uh, typically, that question gets answered in terms of where are there more Chick-fil-A's? That's the way we're probably going to go. But we have to think about all those things. We have to worry about all of those things. When I was a kid, I didn't worry about it. If a cousin was getting married in Oklahoma, you shut up, you get in the van, and then magically, you're in Oklahoma. Because you trust that your father can get you there. Friends, we know that we have the identity and ministry of Jesus rightly grasped when we stop trying to tell him what we think he ought to do. Stop trying to give Jesus directions. And just shut up and get in the van. He knows the way to go. He will get you there safely. Is it the most direct route? No. Is it the route that you would take? No. Thankfully, on both of those. But trust that he will get you where it is that he is taking you. Stop trying to co-opt him. Stop trying to boss him around. He doesn't need a navigator. Listen, you can sit in the passenger seat and just be a passenger princess. You can sip on your little Stanley cup and eat all the snacks and munchies you want. Jesus has got this. You see, the kingdom that he's creating is not one in which he needs people coming along and co-opting what he's going to do. No. We have the identity and ministry of Jesus right when we stop trying to tell him how it is that he needs to go about his business. Fourth and finally then, isn't it ironic? All apologies to Alanis Morissette. 
but don't miss the irony of what's going on in this last pericope. In verse 49, John comes to Jesus because he's really upset about something. There's a guy who comes and he does the very thing that they couldn't do. I hope you see the irony of them fussing because someone is succeeding where they failed. And sadly, that same kind of spirit has not only plagued the church, but it continues to plague the church. Hey, Jesus, someone's doing something in your name, but he's not with us. Uh, R.C. Sproul tells the story of uh, the Marburg Colloquy. Uh, the Marburg Colloquy was uh, an event that happened during the Protestant Reformation. You had sort of two groups that kind of sprang up. You had certainly the uh, Luther in Germany, but then there were a group of reformers in Switzerland. And as the Reformation sought to, as the Reformation was gaining speed and gaining some momentum, uh, Luther and then the Swiss reformers said, hey, let's get together. So let's, we want to be really unified because at the end of the day, uh, the, the Roman church hates us both. So if the enemy of my enemy is my friend, let's come together. Let's make sure we can agree on these things. Uh, you're not against us. Therefore you must be for us. And let's make sure we can, let's get everybody on the same page. And so they sat down and they were, they were trying to unite the German and the Swiss reformers. And they, and the place they got stuck, not surprisingly was the Lord's table. The Swiss reformers were saying, hey, when Jesus said, this is my body, he didn't mean it literally. And Luther was incensed. Luther was convinced that no, uh, not the Roman view of transubstantiation, but his view of consubstantiation. And the Swiss reformers came back and said, well, Jesus also says that he's a vine and a door. Do we think that literally means that he's a vine or that he's literally a door or is he speaking metaphorically? At one point in the conversation, Luther slammed his hand on the table and he pointed to Ulrich Zwingli and he said, you are an Anderngeist, a different spirit. In other words, if you disagree with me on this, you're not really of Christ. Friends, that same spirit plagues the church today. And one of the ways in which I think we can learn from our African brothers and sisters is there is a unity to the church in the developing world that we simply do not know. And they know it because they have to be unified against things like drought. And they had to be unified against things like AIDS. And they have to be unified against the, on, the ongoing and encroaching threat of Islam. You see, in Africa, it's really simple. It's like, hey, uh, do you know and worship Jesus? Yes. Okay. You're my brother or sister. Let's go. Well, what's your view on none of that? You're my brother or sister. Let's go. Because you see that truck coming with those people with the big machine gun in the back? Yeah. They're going to want to kill us because we're Christians. You want to argue about your view of the Lord's table? Or are we going to work together? Are we going to help one another out? It's ironic 
the Jesus who came to create a new Israel, who came to make those who have been separated from God now, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's ironic that we continue to be divided. Now, listen, that doesn't mean theology is important. It doesn't mean that certain distinctives aren't important. But there's a line between saying, hey, listen, I don't think it would be a good idea for us to worship together Sunday by Sunday, as opposed to saying, hey, uh, you are a different spirit. If you don't agree with me on this, I'm not sure if you're of Christ. Jesus didn't come to have a bunch of different little kingdoms. No, he came to usher in the kingdom of God. And it is ironic that the one who came to create a new humanity sees, just like it was in the Tower of Babel, sees his children, his followers, continue to be divided, sometimes needlessly so. This morning, as we come to the table, we are reminded of the nature of Jesus' kingdom. We are reminded that the liberation that he came to bring was not geopolitical liberation for Israel and Jerusalem in the first century. No, Jesus came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're also reminded that his kingdom is not here yet in its fullness. See, the table points us to that wonderful feast that is yet to come. And so we need to be careful that we don't fall prey to thinking the kingdom like the disciples did. The kingdom is here and it's now and it's tied to this particular place and it's tied to this particular political party and it's probably tied to this particular political leader. No, it's none of those things. The kingdom is here, but it's also not yet. It's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your spirit. Uh, we pray that we would be gracious in ways that are Christ-honoring. Lord, not, uh, not gracious in a way that says none of this matters, but gracious in a way that says we can disagree, but you're still my brother or sister in Christ. Gracious in a way that, that rejoices in and recognizes the work of the Spirit in the lives of our brothers and sisters, even if we don't agree with them on every jot and tittle of theology. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.